I'm Debbie Georgiatis. Welcome to my show, America Can We Talk. Today, we're going to talk about Dallas vote fraud fears. Tina Ramirez, congressional candidate, Virginia CD7, joins me. Representative Meadows, new White House chief of staff, great choice. And finally, Corona Panic and George Soros. And I'll tell you why these stories matter to you. Stay tuned. Debbie Georgiatis, host of America Can We Talk, is an author, attorney, and political analyst whose mission is to inspire the American political conversation about preserving liberty in the best country on earth. And welcome again to America Can We Talk and to today's First Five. I'm Debbie Georgiatis. We talked last week a whole lot about Super Tuesday and big day on primaries. We had our primary in Texas. We had some big news emerge on Friday of this week. So we had our primary Tuesday. Votes are counted, winners are announced, numbers are announced. And on Friday, the Dallas Election Commissioner filed pleadings in court saying that they had discovered, the Elections Department had discovered 44 flash drives, you know, little things you stick in your computer to hold data, 44 flash drives with, which had dates, had votes on them that had not been counted. Roughly speaking, they're estimating 10% of the vote never got counted. But the real question is these 44 flash drives, where were they between Tuesday and Friday? So right now where it stands, the election, whatever was filed in court last Friday was somehow deemed um, insufficient. There was some flaw in the filing, so the refiling, there's going to be hearing coming up. But I wanted to raise it in today's first five. Even if you live in Dallas, Texas, or wherever you live, these kind of stories matter to you, and I want to explain why. On our show several months ago, we had a guest named Russ Ramsland, and, and he was talking about the potential for voter fraud conducted or engaged in by people using remote access to manipulate voter data inside voting machines. Well, the same kind of thing is potentially a problem on these flash drives. They literally hold, you finish your voting, everyone votes, you go home, they stick a flash drive in to all these different computers used for voting, and those flash drives hold data. So sometime, or during, between Tuesday when the polls closed and Friday when this discovery was made, someone had control, or many someones, had control of those 44 flash drives. The question is, did someone manipulate the contents? Did someone even open the contents? Was it one of those truly innocent things like, you know, tossed in the back of a election judge's car and did not discover it until much later, they fell out of the packet, all sorts of innocent explanations are possible. But the court filing that was, it has to be withdrawn, but the court filing that was made last Friday contained inconsistent descriptions of what happened to those flash drives. And I raise this to say, no matter where you live, Dallas, Texas, or anywhere in the United States of America, the elections of 2020 are highly contentious. There are many valid concerns about election fraud in this country in all sorts of ways, from people remaining on voter rolls who don't belong there, uh, election officials unwilling to clean up voter rolls, people registered in more than one state, the potential for manipulation of data that, as we talked about, and I really urge you, if you, are, if you listen regularly, you probably remember this interview. I interviewed Russ Ramsland, who was, is the head of a group that had looked into the voter manipulation in previous elections in 2018 and could show, using a variety of things, or too hard to explain this first five, 
that you, you can show that votes can be and had been manipulated in past elections, remotely and electronically. So where we stand right now in Dallas, and I will keep you updated in this story, where we stand in Dallas is this. We have, for decades, people have tried to treat the other party with respect, with a presumption of innocence, with the notion, hey, we're all professionals here. The elections department people, they are professionals. The head of the other po the county party, both parties are soon to be people of honor and integrity. And so people are loath, they are unwilling to make accusations of potential wrongdoing lightly. And we should be unwilling to make unjustified accusations or just ac accusations without uh, depth of information to back them up. On the other hand, every single person involved in the Dallas County elections should want, not just because the petition the, court, the, the uh, election department filed just said, hey, we need the court, a judge to order that we can reopen this election to count these last 10% of votes. So they need a court order because the election's closed. They need a court order to reopen it is the first question. And the judge probably going to say yes. I mean, you're not going to say no. He's not going to say no. You can't uh, count these votes. But the question is, do we have the tenacity and determination in this courtroom by both political parties, by every party involved, to insist for a forensic investigation to assure what happened to the data inside those flash drives between Tuesday and Friday? People don't like to make requests like that. People think it's viewed as confrontational or casting suspicion or, you know, casting accusations against the other side that are, or against the elections department that maybe data was manipulated. And I'm telling you that the data could have been manipulated by somebody, could have been by somebody who had no connection to the county elections department, who had the content, who had hold of the flash drives or access to them or electronic access to them. And whatever occurred between Tuesday and Friday, there needs to be the backbone and determination by people involved in this issue as we move forward resolving in Dallas to say, we can't agree this gets resolved until everybody knows what happened between Tuesday and Friday with the, and, and also what was the chain of custody? Who had these flash drives? Who held onto them? Who, you know, who had, how'd they get from wherever it was that they were uh, gathered at voting locations on Tuesday until they ended up being delivered on Friday? Who had them? And what was, you know, chain of custody, all that has to be determined because if we don't pursue that, we're number one, willing to kind of surrender the idea that maybe something bad happened, but we're just gonna let it go because we don't wanna be viewed as confrontational, unfair, accusatory uh, of the other, of somebody, of whoever held on to them, of the other party, of the elections department. The primary goal is, is, it has nothing to do with who gets offended. The primary goal is figuring out exactly what happened to them, was the information manipulated, what processes must be, much be fixed so this never happens again. All of that has to be resolved for the voters in Dallas County and really across the country to feel like we have a system committed to election integrity. And that, my friends, is today's first five. Well, as I said at the start of the show, we have a guest in studio. I love in studio, so much more fun. We have Tina Ramirez joining us in studio. She's sitting here today. She is a candidate for U.S. Congress from the state of Virginia. The uh, is CD7, right? Mm -hmm. Congressional District 7. So first of all, I'll just tell you, my friends, I met Tina a few months ago through some mutual friends, and then and my husband and I were at a conference last week. We ran into her there, which was <laughs> really fun, uh, in California. So now here we are back in Texas. She's here in Texas visiting. 
I wanted to have her come on and just talk to you about her campaign. So welcome, Tina. Thank you for having me. It's great to be with you all, and it's nice to meet you. If you want to learn more, it's tinaramirez.com. So. I have that right here on my sheet, yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I, yeah, so I will, I do wanna, um, I think you have, first of all, I love this you're running for Congress. I Thank love you. that. I love having Republican women run for Congress. Yeah, there needs to be more of us out there. Yeah, but I wanna have you start because I think you have such an interesting life. I mean, different than a lot of long-term, just political type people. So do you just give our listeners a little bit of a flavor of your background in life? I just think it's so interesting. Yeah, sure. So you're right. I'm not a politician. I haven't run for office before. This is my first time. Um, I run an international organization that defends religious liberty around the world. So I've spent the majority of the last 20 years in about 30 different countries helping 30 countries. 30. And not, you know, like the hot spots where you'd like to go on vacation, but places like Nigeria and Sudan and Iraq um, that are conflict zones. And in those environments, I've been helping people find freedom. And so we establish leaders in these countries that can help the people defend their religious freedom. We have Thomas Jefferson and Patrick Henry and all of those people even today, you know, you can, you know, if you need a lawyer, you can find any of them that can help you with religious liberty cases. But around the world, that just doesn't happen. And so that's what we're establishing in countries where they're experiencing severe religious conflicts so we can help turn the tide against it. That is so. honestly just the most amazing and unique thing for, especially for a woman to the countries you mentioned are often unfriendly toward women or limiting of women's rights. Did you ever feel unsafe in these adventures around the world? No, I've, I've never been unsafe, which I guess is a miracle and through a lot of prayer, I'm sure. But um, in each of the countries where I travel, I have a lot of local partners that I've worked with for many years. And so they provide a lot of protection and support for me when I'm there. And so I feel very at home wherever I'm traveling. And I mean, these are people that are risking their lives to find freedom. So I know that my life is, is very important to them. And so I, I do put myself in their hands when I'm there. So you're not just pursuing religious freedom for Christians, it's for any groups. Is exactly. That right? Yep. I defend everybody. I you know, in America we have the First Amendment and it protects everyone and if, you know, it's kinda like it's a sinking ship. If you're you know, it's if um it's just for one person, then it's not for everyone really. And so that's what I do is I defend the dignity and freedom of every person to believe what they want, regardless of whether I agree with them or not. And so in countries like Sudan, I, you may remember there was this case several years ago of a pregnant woman that was going to be put to death. Her name was Miriam Ibrahim. Yep. And the Sudanese government said she was an apostate. She was forced to recant her faith and she wouldn't do it. And it was five Muslim lawyers that actually came in her defense that we worked with that defended her religious freedom. And they said, look, no one should be forced to recant their faith. We want to help you. And by helping you, we can help hundreds of others that are forced to recant their faith under the blasphemy laws in Sudan. So they did. And they risked everything to defend her. So. Okay, I never. I actually talked about that case yeah. in the show. They were Muslim lawyers defending mm-hmm. her. If five Muslim lawyers, and then our team, we had Muslims and Christians across the country. But in Sudan, the only people that can work at the Supreme Court at the time or that had experience were Muslims, and so she had to have Muslim lawyers defend her. And these are lawyers that were challenging the blasphemy laws. And in Sudan, historically, there's been a lot of support amongst Muslims and Christians to work together because the dictator of Sudan, who's now been taken out of power, Omar al-Bashir, he was an equal opportunity oppressor. He killed, you know, Darfurians because they were the wrong kind of of Muslim, and he killed people across the south that were Christians or animists. So, so everybody was united in their effort to actually stand up to this dictator. And when Miriam okay. <laughs> Miriam stood up to him, then this was a really important case for the people to come together and win. So that is so amazing. Yeah. Okay. 
We could talk the whole time yep. about your life adventures, but I do want to turn to <laughs> Virginia running for Congress and it's Congressional District 7. Yeah. This is a district where I'm pretty sure that the current office holder is just a one-term, first-term Democrat. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And prior to that was a Republican. Um, I'm losing his... Yeah, this was yeah. this seat had been held for 30 years by Republicans. It was Dave Bratt, Dave who Bratt, was, yeah. was part of the Freedom Caucus. And then before that, it was Eric Cantor, who was in line to be the Speaker of the House. So this is a really important district. And uh, I like to joke because my day job is dealing with dictators. So I don't feel like going to Congress, I'd be doing much different <laughs> when it, yeah. when it comes to the Democratic Party, you know? <laughs> I mean, in the... That's a good line. Yeah, That's well, line. I feel like I've been fighting socialist ideas for the last 20 years. So Bernie and... AOC and now Abigail Spanberger essentially represent everything I fought against my entire life. And so I'm excited to be taking the seat back. And it's it's a critical seat. I know that we're here in Texas and people might wonder, well, why are you talking about a Virginia seat? But the reality is uh, we have to gain 17 seats back in order to regain the majority in Congress this year. And this seat in Richmond, Virginia is one of the most important seats to win back. If we don't win it, we do not win the majority back. And so it's critical. But on top of that, we have seen in the last year how the Democrats have been throwing money like Soros and Bloomberg into all of these states to try to take our states away from us, our conservative states like yep. Texas. Yeah. And they've done the same thing in Virginia. So last year they took control of the House and the Senate. And in the last two months, the Virginia legislature, we've seen how they've they've pushed back on the on the life issue. They've they've taken back 20 years of bipartisan legislation to protect life. They've pushed on the on the Second Amendment. Oh, and they've yeah. totally dismantled our Second Amendment in Virginia. But this is just a test case for what they want to do across the nation. And so we've got to win the seat back and send a very strong message to Soros and Bloomberg and all of them that you can't have our conservative states. You can't have our country. I mean, that's no. A, I always said that about Soros. You and we are going to fight. Country. Exactly. Okay. So on the congressional seats, the 17 we have to win back. And yeah. I'm actually focused on a lot of the races and have people yeah. on the show because the districts we can flip. Mm -hmm. This one is particularly flippable. It's almost a fluke that there is a Democrat in that seat. Absolutely. Well, if we have the right candidate. So I have like six other competitors in the nomination process. We have a convention in a couple of months. And I'm the front runner. I was endorsed by the party. They've already already said that I would be one of their top candidates in the nation when I win this seat. So this is critical. It's with the right candidates, people that are true conservatives that can help challenge the narrative. You know, when I'm on that seat or I'm on that that uh, podium next to Abigail Spanberger and we're having debates, she's not going to be able to call me a bigot or a misogynist or a racist because my entire life has been anything but that. I've been defending the dignity and freedom all over the world of people yeah. so that don't have it. So she's going to have a very hard time and it's going to challenge the narrative that, that the liberals want to put on us that somehow we don't exist as a diverse party and we do. I love that too. So in your district, I mean, I don't know all the details about mm -hmm. why it flipped this one time, but in your district, do you sense talking to people that the voters in your district are very much turned off to the way the Democrats and this particular person holding the seat that you're seeking are treating President Trump? I mean, is there a sense of indignance about the way the yeah. Democrats have marched along and fought against President Trump the whole way? Absolutely. And when we were at that conference, one of the leaders in the Tea Party Patriots was telling me that they polled all of the different districts that were flipped and that my district was one of the top two districts that was the most indignant about the fact that my Congresswoman, Abigail Spamberger, voted to impeach the president. And so this is one of their top pickups. But look, we saw something else happen in the election where she won the seat, which is that suburban women overwhelmingly supported her and we can't we can't ignore that fact and so um, as a suburban mom, mom myself and I happen to be a single mother we've been able to resonate really well with that with that 
part of the district. And I think that's one of the reasons that she'll have a hard time when it comes to challenging me, because she's going to have to start talking about issues and policy. And when it comes to that, she's voted lockstep with Nancy Pelosi and AOC. And so we'll, we'll be able to take her on and really win back the seat. I love that, and that was one of the points I want to get to, is this whole idea of the suburban women vote. Supposedly, uh, and I saw some polling which may have been inaccurate, but there's still a big problem, suburban women, and a lot of us just not particularly liking President Trump. I mean, it's a, it may be because they want certain policies, they feel sympathetic on immigration or the border, but there's also just an anti-Trumpishness. And I have to say, I've uh, my, my journey has been from a, a support of a different candidate in the primary in 2016 mm -hmm. to kind of uh, being edgy about President Trump or candidate Trump wasn't sure to being just so excited for what he's doing for our country. Mm -hmm. So do you feel when you're campaigning, are you comfortable and, and where you are just just speaking up mm -hmm. for the of, of the agenda President Trump is bringing forth? Oh, absolutely. The president is doing a great job. I mean, look, I've been to Washington. I worked for a congressman for four years. I built a bipartisan caucus to defend religious freedom. So I've had to work in the swamp and in a very difficult environment to fight for our values. And so I know what he's up against. And I, he is doing a great job cleaning out that swamp and there's a lot more work that needs to be done, but also looking at deregulation, looking at building our economy, looking at the trade agreements. He's delivered on everything he said he would do. Yep. And the things he hasn't been able to deliver on yet, it's because the Congress is stalling it and he's having to find other ways to get around and do it. Do it. But we need people in Congress that are gonna be helping him fulfill his agenda and that's what I intend to do. I could not agree more. And it's astonishing. I talked to more people who were supporters of some other candidate in the primary, and they honestly they say not only are they just were they surprised and grateful for the direction of the country and the Trump agenda, mm -hmm. but really how much success he's been able to have, even given mm -hmm. it's not just the Democrats fighting him. There's some kind of uh, element of the Republican Party mm -hmm. that I'm within Congress. It wasn't maybe they weren't actively fighting him, but they weren't fighting for him. They weren't right. getting in there in the fight. And this yeah. is the kind of people I want to see because I, I'm kind mm -hmm. of amazed as his agenda is so successful and his polling numbers are so strong within his mm -hmm. party that we still have to have, that we don't have a strong Democrat support, mm -hmm. or excuse me, Republican support for him mm -hmm. as we will in the, con as we should have had in the Congress. You think that's shifting or? Well, look, we, I'm in a district that voted plus six points for President Trump. So this is a district that went with him that's very upset that Abigail Spamberger voted for impeachment and that wants to get this seat back. This is a conservative district. And the reason that I'm resonating with people in the district is because I spent the last 20 years fighting for our conservative values. And in really practical ways so whether it was that in the US Congress building that support whether it's through my business and defending liberty around the world which is a very different kind of experience than what many yes. candidates have <laughs> and you know fighting dictators um, or I also work for the Beckett Fund which defended Hobby Lobby at the Supreme Court so yeah. I've had like this front row seat to Obamacare and understanding what this fight and this really it's a cultural battle for our values is all about in America well don't you think actually in the women's vote again I love that you're yes. talking directly about the women's vote but to me the Law, the uh, uncertainty among some women is not really because they're opposed to the agenda of the Trump team or the Republican Party. It's just not really understanding it. It's being led along by the mm -hmm. media. The media tells them that Republicans are anti-women or, or mm -hmm. some other slogans they buy into. Right. But I actually think there is, I think the best thing the party could do is just educate everyone in America, including women, about what we do stand for and how our ideas work. Right. But what's our, what's, how are we going to win the women? You tell no, us. No, I absolutely agree with you. So since I'm a single mother, when I look at this, I think one of the things that frustrates me more than anything is I run my business, I run my family, and I have to run it on a budget. 
and I have to be fiscally responsible. And I can't personally understand why, if I'm willing to risk my life to fight for my daughter to have a future by traveling all over to the, these different countries and you know d doing what I do in my day job and then coming home and having the government take a third of my income and then waste it. And I've literally seen firsthand how it's been wasted overseas, where they spend hundreds of millions of dollars clearing graffiti off of the walls in Iraq and then <laughs> the walls get destroyed because the Iraqis and the Kurds fight each other. Or, yeah. I mean, it, the amount of waste overseas is insane. And if we can return those wasted resources back to the people that earn them, that's really the key. But look, President Trump has done a good job of building the economy and of trying to restore fiscal responsibility to our country. And that's what women like myself, and there 70% of women are single mothers now. That's what they want to hear. Because wait, wait, wait. 70% of American women are single mothers? Yes. So the statistics are I'm, up to like, it's like 60, 70, 70% of women are single mothers now. Wow. Yes. So it's a huge number. And when it, if I have to, if I have to provide for my family and provide for my future, my retirement, balance my budget and run a business at the same time, and there are a lot of working mothers and the government can't do the same. For me personally, it frustrates me to no end. I am not a piggy bank for them to just, an unlimited piggy bank they can just pull from. And that's the way I feel like our government is treating us. And that's what motivates me on top of all the social issues that I'm extremely concerned about. We are becoming a socialist country where I am just here to work for the government versus the government working for me. And that never should have happened in our country. Yeah, that was actually one of the things people say about the Bernie Sanders candidacy mm -hmm. is that we were kind of in a, you know, the frog in the water <laughs> analogy people make yes. about if you, if the water is cool, the frog is happy, it's slowly heating and the frog doesn't realize it happening. And, but if you drop a frog yeah. into a boiling pot, he knows to jump out. Mm -hmm. Well, that analogy to socialism was this idea, and I'm sure you've heard this, but we were slowly mm -hmm. boiling towards socialism. Right along the way in ways you're describing that we pay more and more in taxes and mm -hmm. the government's redistributing it around the world and in our country. But Bernie Sanders is kind of one of the good things about him. He's helped Americans see this is actually happening here right now. And yeah. and and you know this is this is in your face. This is the, the hot water they're trying to drop. So I, I love that and I mm -hmm. think it is awakening much a lot of discussion in America yeah. about whether we're going to, to go along with this or fight it. Look, I grew up, my mother became a single mother when I was very young. And so I saw her work multiple jobs to take care of my family. I then, when I became a single mother, I've had to do the same thing. And I just, I think there are a lot of women that understand that and that don't want the government to be the one that's constantly taking everything they earn. But look, the American family is being attacked yeah. right now by the government. When you look at Obamacare and what it did to us, when I had my daughter, as a single mother, it cost, I spent over $5,000 just in paying deductible costs. That is an attack on the American family. The most natural procedure that every woman will have in her lifetime is to give birth. How is it that that's become the most expensive one under Obamacare? And I believe that they're attacking the American family at every step with their socialist policies. And that's what we've got to turn, turn and fight against. We sure do. I could not yeah. agree more. So well, that's in, why I'm running. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was kind of the, the kind of what drives you to run was what my guess. This question I was going to close with or open yeah. with, but yeah, you're driving. You're running. I'm frustrated. Our government's not working for us, and I think a lot of people are frustrated by what's happening in Washington. But but I'm personally frustrated, and I feel like I have a very different background and experience that our party needs to win moving forward. In Virginia, in particular, we have lost so many seats in the last five to ten years, and we keep losing running the same kind of candidates. So we've got to do something different if we want to actually win. And I realized 
that because I have a unique background experience, I need to give it to the party to help us win. I don't want to lose. I want my daughter to be able to grow up in an environment where she's not treated as a bigot or a racist or misogynist for just being conservative. We yeah. shouldn't be. We shouldn't be is absolutely right. So I'll tell you, here in the gray state of Texas, yeah. when we get involved in campaigns, which I endlessly do, people, uh, the mm -hmm. way among the main things, everyone has to raise money, of course, but you mm -hmm. do, it's a lot of the community events and knock mm -hmm. on doors. And so you, is your life just bursting with activity every moment to get it is. this it's, campaign? It's very busy. So I still run my organization full time. I did it while I was pregnant and had my daughter, so I have never stopped. And so I, and then I campaign full time, and that's what I do. And I think that's what a lot of hardworking Americans do. So I don't, I don't want to be dependent on others. I think that it's important that whatever people donate to my campaign goes to the campaign, and that's so that's why I keep working as long as I can. Bless you. Okay, so yeah. you mentioned earlier. I'll say it again. This is we're speaking with Tina Ramirez. She's running for U.S. Congress from the state of Virginia, CD7, Congressional District 7. You can find her um, on Twitter at Tina Ramirez VA for Virginia, uh, and all her, also her website, Tina Ramirez. I'm sorry, am I saying that right? Tina TinaRamirez.com. Yes, that is it. Okay, that's it. So if people want to help you, they can obviously donate. Yeah, yeah. I'd love for them to donate. That would be a huge help. I mean, look, Abigail Spamberger raises money across the country and has about half a million every quarter, and it's from Soros and Bloomberg and even James Comey. So as conservatives, James Comey donates to your opponent. James oh. Comey. She used to be a CIA. She used to work for the CIA. So you you know who knows. But um, yeah, so we, as conservatives, we need to come together and support candidates that can help us win. And this isn't just about Virginia. This is about building a bench for our country of conservatives that can help us take back our country. Absolutely right. And taking back the U.S. House. Mm -hmm. I mean, I've, you said it and I'll just, yeah. I've said it on the show many times, but mm -hmm. if we don't take back mm -hmm. the majority in the U.S. House in these 2020 elections, even if President Trump wins, even if we hold the right. Senate, we will look at four years of ongoing impeachments. Right. Impeachment, that's just all that will happen. Wasting time and money from the American people. That's what it is. Oh, and it's so outrageous when you think about the people who, you know, ran on things, Democrats who ran on issues like, I'm gonna do this, I'm gonna do this. Yeah. All they've done is try to remove the president. I know, I look, I was a congressional staffer for four years, and I did more in those four years as a congressional staffer than most congressmen do up there in their lifetime. But I can tell you, Abigail Spamberger spent the last year just focusing on impeaching our president. And so I, I already have more experience than her, and I look forward, <laughs> I look forward to having a debate with her and, and taking back this seat for, for common sense Americans that believe in conservative values. So when is your Virginia primary for your seat? So April 25th, so we've got about six weeks to go. April 25th, okay, there was some date on your website that had June 9th, what is that date? Is That, that the... must be for something else, yeah. Okay, so April 25th, and it's a seven way? It's like, there's like six other guys running against me, yeah. Six and guys I, and you? Yes. Okay, you let them have it, Tina. <laughs> they have no chance. <laughs> yeah, they, I, I, that's the way I feel. But <laughs> so we, we're doing great. We've been running a really aggressive campaign uh, since the beginning. I was the first person to announce. I've been running for almost a year. We've raised more money than anyone else. The majority of that money has come from very small dollar donations from within the district. So I think I have more local support than any other candidate. I was endorsed by the National Republican Congressional Committee uh, last year in August and um, by a number of women's PACs. So view pack and Maggie's list and and I'm really excited about taking the seat back and really helping our party win and succeed in the future. So I love it. Tina Ramirez, thank you so much <laughs> thank for you, coming Debbie, in. Nice Great to with have you. you here. Thank you so much. And my friends, I want to encourage you again to go to her website. It is TinaRamirez.com or you can follow her on Twitter at Tina Ramirez VA. And honestly, 
well, I met her, my husband and I met her at an event at our, our we have a mutual friend here in Dallas, both so excited that night. I think this is one of those great campaigns to follow. If you're looking for someone to donate to, which I hope you are, I, I would consider doing it. So anyway, thanks so much for coming in. Thank you, Debbie. Okay, one last story I want to hit, no, two last stories I want to hit. Uh, one is, and I want to tell you that uh, this story, I wrote a column um, that appeared at American Thinker. And on, on American Thinker, you can find it, I wrote about, uh, the, uh, the decision by President Trump, he announced a new chief of staff, which is Representative Mark Meadows. Mark Meadows, we've mentioned many times on this show, one of the stalwart defenders of President Trump as a member of Congress. Meadows has been one of the ones speaking up during the impeachment, speaking up during the time the Mueller investigation was going on. Mark Meadows has been one of the ones who really, really gets the challenges we face against the Democrats in this country. He's been fabulous. So as you remember last week, we had Congressman Louis Gohmert on the show, and he was saying before the announcement, before the announcement of Mark Meadows uh, becoming chief of staff, uh, Louis Gohmert, Congressman Gohmert said that he had said that to President Trump. You ought to get, get, because Mark Meadows has now announced he's retiring as a member of Congress, you ought to get him as your chief of staff. And at the time, what Congressman Gohmert relayed was that President Trump was saying, well, yeah, I know he's, he's a good guy. There's some other people being recommended. The reason I want to say, have a segment talk about this is this is a really key decision. Who his chief of staff is means who's in charge at the White House, who's got his ear, has the president's ear, and Mark Meadows, to borrow the expression, he knows where the bodies are buried in Washington. He knows the background of various people in Congress and in the White House and the administration. He's been there long, long enough to understand that some people may tell President Trump they are his friends, his supporters, and they're not. So Meadows is someone who's got tremendous ability to bring President Trump up to speed, who are your friends and who are not your friends, and also to help him get, you know, it's an interesting thing because President Trump, I mean, he stormed into office, America was thrilled, but President Trump did not have a deep bench, a wide set of connections in Washington as other past presidents have had. So when they came in, they kind of knew so-and-so or they knew someone who knew people, but President Trump didn't have that. So when he got into the White House, he had a lot of people, we call them deep state or holdovers, People who hung around from the Obama era, still inside the White House, still inside the State Department, still inside the Department of Justice, people just not really friendly to the president's agenda, but he has no way of knowing this. And so as he, President Trump, moves along trying to do what he said he would do and follow through his agenda, he's got people undermining him all around him. And when you haven't been there a long time, you don't really know that. So this choice of Mark Meadows to serve as his chief of staff is is kind of a signal that President Trump is stepping up for the fight. He's understanding to really get everything done. He promised he has got to clean house. He has got to clean out the White House and the administrative staff. He has got to figure out who's on his side, who's not, who's leaking. I mean, he's been undercut. President Trump has many ways since he won the election with people who are leaking, people who are giving him bad advice. In fact, the other point Congressman Gohmert made while he was here was this idea that you know there's a, a personnel office in the White House and the person running the personnel office was an Obama person, kind of friendly to the Obama team. And so if that person is doing the inter interviewing or the vetting and saying, here are your top three candidates, do we have any way of knowing if those people who are being referred for interviews 
are even on the same team as President Trump. It's just a, it's a, so to me, the choice of Mark Meadows was a signal both of seriousness by President Trump. He's going to get to the bottom of who his supporters are and who his not supporters are. I urge you to read my article in American Thinker. In fact, everything we talked about today, all the stories we talk about, the links to the stories are on my website, americacanwetalk.org. When you go there on the homepage under shows, drop down list of links, you can read these articles, including mine about Meadows. Several other really great pieces were in, uh, written in various places in the media. Um, and it was really just a, um, a kind of a sigh of relief to a lot of President Trump supporters, the idea that Mark Meadows is going to step in and he's you know hit the ground running, already prepared, is not doing on-the-job training. He's there to really enable President Trump to do the job that he promised America he would do and is trying to do. So. That, I want to hit that story. Great story. I'll have to follow up as, well as with how he's doing, but I'm sure that Mark Meadows will be a fabulous chief of staff. Last story I want to hit today has to do with the coronavirus, or I'm calling it the corona panic. I know what happened today. We are not going to talk about the coronavirus every day in the show until it's been obliterated because it could consume all of our time, can make everybody fearful, and this is part of what the left wants. Of course, we have to be cautious. Of course, people have to do smart things, you know, wash their hands. And But I want to just mention some things that have happened in, in the discussion of coronavirus and just really just ask people to think of not the idea that we should be cavalier, not the idea we should just, you know, be dismissive of it, but really look at the way two things. One is the way the left, as they do on every issue, the opportunity, as they, that famous expression was, of never let a good crisis go to waste. The left will use this unfortunate coronavirus as a means of attacking President Trump, mocking his decisions, mocking his, the team he put in charge, mocking the decisions they make, mocking when they did, made them in place, you know, Monday morning quarterbacking about saying, well, he did this, but he really should have done that. This will happen until, because the left always takes advantage of the uh, of any situation they can, but number two, to be realistic about the coronavirus, yeah, today we had some really bad numbers. The stock market was way down. You know, the um, energy market is a mess right now. There's a lot of people concerned about uh, kind of watching the stock market, watching oil futures, and just seeing their portfolio be depleted. People, we have to be strong. We have to not panic. What the left would like more than anything else is for us to panic for the American people to panic, for the American people to turn on President Trump, for the American people to look at all the great economic numbers that we were celebrating for the last three and a half years, and all of a sudden see, see, when, they go, when the numbers go down because of the coronavirus or fears about the coronavirus, all of a sudden say, see, it was all, all the house of cards, President Trump didn't do anything right, it's all falling apart. Whatever happens as an impact of coronavirus will be directly blamed on President Trump and somehow to diminish his numbers. I'm going to tell you a couple quick stories. So Ben Carson, you know, we all know Ben Carson, love Ben Carson. Um, you know, he is a member of Trump's administration and he was interviewed on Sunday by George Stephanopoulos. So in this interview with George Stephanopoulos, he, Ben Carson, was essentially saying, look, you have to be wise. You have to think for yourself. People who tend to uh, have a serious problem, who may actually uh, contract the coronavirus and, and pass on from it, are those people who are vulnerable. They're weak. They have either a weakened immune system, they are elderly, they're in some other reason unhealthy. Those people, said Ben Carson, 
have to be especially careful. You might want to stay away from crowds. You might want to stay in. But people who are healthy, most people, he's saying, you may even pick up the coronavirus and it'll feel like a mild flu and you can still function in your life. You don't have to do your stay home until you are absolutely sure that you're healthy. He was urging people, think for yourselves and don't be afraid because really what seems to be happening in the stories we read, and honestly, folks, we have these conversations at our house and with our friends and all in a variety of contexts, there is a fear creeping in to America's culture, a fear that's saying, oh my gosh, all that was so good about our country seems to be falling apart. Coronavirus is really going to get us all. It's going to destroy the stock market. It's going to destroy the, the, uh, all the products we need to be bringing, importing our country from China. It's going to hurt us. And this fear that, we, that we're helpless, we can't do anything about it. And that fear is a very dangerous thing. It causes people to withdraw, causes people to fail to engage in the economy, to go to work, to go to events they should be at. And that fear causes us to close down. And part of what Ben Carson was addressing was, look, you think for yourself. And that was the thing that, by the way, George Stephanopoulos jumped on. What do you mean think for yourself? What does that mean? What kind of advice is that? To which Ben Carson said, hey, you know what? If you're healthy and you feel fine and you're not, you don't have an immune, some kind of weakness or, or, or you know, ongoing illness that makes you feel unhealthy and weak, you can go ahead and function. You can go out and be in crowds. You can go out in the world. You'll wash your hands, take care, you know, keep surfaces clean, you know, wash what you're eating, but you don't have to be afraid. But I feel like this coronavirus, number one, it's an intentional by the left, or by, as I love to call them, the Democrat media mob. It is an intentional effort by the left to implant fear in the American culture, in the American people, and to cause us to withdraw and then start to cast blame on people, to point fingers at people, to blame. I mean, we, I, I'm fine if you want to blame China. I'm good with that because China was the source of it. We still have to figure out whether China is even beginning to tell the real true story, what happened over there. Fine blaming China. But in our country, we have to remember who we are as Americans. We have an extremely robust healthcare system in this country. We have robust healthcare policies. We have people in place in our country, in positions of authority, and medical institutions around this country that are healthy and strong and robust. We can withstand this. We cannot give in to the panic the left is trying to plant in our hearts. And I mentioned, I called this segment, I mentioned Soros, and I did it on purpose. You know, back when we had 2008, we had this horrible economy. We had the big, uh, you know, crash, or I guess I didn't call it a crash, but the, but the big downturn in the economy. And part of what we all learned afterwards, much later, was that there was intentional manipulation of our stock market by George Soros and people of his ilk to try to weaken the American economy. What leftists want from Soros to every other leftist element in this world to leftist thought in this country is a weakened American economy, a weakened people, a fearful people. This is what the left hopes happens. This is what George Soros hopes happens. He hopes he can manipulate our stock market to make things worse. Our energy supplies are threatened and all of a sudden we're all fearful. What if we can't go places? What if we can't travel? What if we can't, what if we can't? George Soros feeds off of, he loves American fear. He wants to break the spirit of the American free market economy, of the American people, of the strength of our country. This is the intent of people like George Soros. It is the intent of many leftists in this country. So I'm not saying be cavalier 
uh, about coronavirus, but I am saying recognize the left uses fear as a weapon. They use fear as a weapon to cause people to be afraid. And so our economy continues to contract because no one will go out to dinner, no one will go on a trip, no one will go to public places. This is, a, this is just a, a, a brilliant opportunity if you're a radical leftist to say, great, we have the American people in a position of fear, in a position of doubt, and we're going to be able to harm them. We're going to play with the stock market. We're going to harm them and, and they'll see their savings depleted and their retirement they had saved so long and now it seems to be out the door. So Ben Carson, who has more reason to know about the power of coronavirus and health than George Soros or most leftists, basically just just is, was telling George Stephanopoulos, yeah, people can, can you think for themselves and, and, and use wisdom, but there's also a lot of data, and I was gonna put charts up, but they're pretty dry to put up, a lot of data showing that we don't have a massive crisis on our hands in America. We have a serious threat. Uh, coronavirus is, you know, it's not a good thing, but it's not like the Spanish flu of 1918, I think it was, whatever year it was. It's not like these massive things where we have better healthcare systems now than we had in 1918. We have better healthcare, we have better uh, systems in place to keep us healthy. And I, I really just, um, I want to, I actually want to urge you to go to our website again, americanwetalk.org, and take a look um, on our homepage under shows, drop down list of links, numerous articles up about with experts saying, including an infectious disease doctor saying, don't panic, don't panic. It's not just that I don't want you to be fearful. I don't want anyone to be fearful. But I want us to recognize the left will use our fear to take away our liberty. That is how it works when you're a leftist. It is an opportunity to take control of our country, take control of our people. Don't buy into it. One last thing before I tell you the return to why it matters to you is on our website, we did something new. At first, I want to thank you. I get these great emails from listeners. You can email me at americacanwetalk at gmail.com. One listener who subscribes to our weekly newsletter, which you can do by going to our website, americacanwetalk.org on the homepage, hit subscribe. You can subscribe as a weekly newsletter. One guy wrote a couple days ago and said, hey, look, I love your newsletter, but I, and he receives it by email. But he said, you said it's on your website, but I can't find it. So we have, we made an adjustment on our website so it's easier to see. Again, americacanwetalk.org on the homepage now, you'll see, I think it's across the middle banner, but there is a place to get the weekly newsletter. And the reason I think you'll like it is, it just neatly summarizes the shows of the week, it links back to various interviews. So you just want to find that one interview, you can go there and find it. Um, and so I want to, we, we're trying to always update the website to make it easier to use, easier to share. And I'd love to have, if you would like to subscribe to our newsletter, I'd love if you would do that. Again, americacanwetalk.org, hit subscribe once a week. I never share the list. I don't sell the list. It's just for my use to send out links, a weekly newsletter, and I hope you'll do that. It's a, it's a great way to catch up on the shows. If you work hard, as most of Republicans do, um, and so you only have the weekend to catch up on my shows, you can see all the shows and the weekly uh, email, and you can share it with your friends. And now, we're at the end of our show. Uh, time always goes too fast on this show, but I always try at the end of every show to tell you why the stories we talked about today matter to you. So to start with our first story today, we talked about the Dallas vote fraud fears. The Dallas County elections irregularities on, in the March 3rd primary voting have become a national story. Uncounted thumb drives of precinct vote tallies, 44 thumb drives, about 10% of the vote. Four days of apparently undocumented chain of custody issues 
with the thumb drives. Speculation runs rampant. Forensic evaluation of the thumb drive contents must happen. Texas state leadership may need to step in, investigate, clean house, and possibly take over Dallas elections in November. That's an idea being floated. I'd be for that. Honest election officials on both political sides should agree on goals of accurate vote counts and sunlight of truth on the processes. It's time for truth, not blind trust of the other side. And Mark Meadows, the new White House chief of staff, the uniparty resistance to President Trump from day one was not understood and was grossly underestimated by Americans generally and even by President Trump himself. Mark Meadows, Jim Jordan, John Ratcliffe, Doug Collins, Louis Gohmert are among the few D.C. denizens who, Donald, who do understand and do not underestimate the resistance of Trump. Appointment of Meadows as President's chief of staff is a major step forward for President Trump and the MAGA and KAG agenda. Better protection of the president from fake DC friends, additional courage to face down deep state corruption and drain the swamp, alignment with the spirit of Trump's agenda. Meadows is a patriot. He's not looking to write the next tell-all book. And finally, the corona panic and Soros. Any as yet uncontained or unremedied virus should be handled seriously and wisely. Pence's group, including Dr. Ben Carson, are doing that. Americans should be wary of over-the-top hysteria and fear-mongering, including in financial markets. Oh, yeah, I meant to mention, read Kevin Freeman's Secret Weapon book about what happened in 2008. Great book. Documented evidence of purposeful actions in 2008 financial crisis by Soros intended to harm America's economy. Leftists openly embrace, never let a good crisis go to waste. Fear and panic can open up the opportunity to make radical changes that would be rejected out of hand absent that fear and panic. Leftists like Soros seek to see Trump removed from office or not reelected. Be thoughtful and careful regarding the coronavirus and facts and, and analysis, but be wise in your behaviors. Reject panic or hysteria. And that, my friends, is America Can We Talk for today. Thank you so much for tuning in every Monday through Thursday, 3 p.m. Central Time, where I always talk truth about America because America matters. I'll talk to you next time. Can we talk truth about America? Can you-